Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Jamie Fly. Jamie Fly is the current president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, with a background in foreign policy, serving as a former advisor to Senator Rubio. Roger and Jamie discuss the work of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and its approach to journalism. Jamie presents the importance of combating disinformation and the necessity for reliable news sources given the severity of recent events in Afghanistan, Russia, and Eastern Europe. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Jamie Fly, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Roger. You're coming to us from Prague, Czech Republic. I almost said Czechoslovakia. Why is Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty headquartered in Prague? It's a good question. It, uh, it also tells a little bit about our history. We were in Munich, uh, Germany for most of the Cold War uh, after we were set up about 70 years ago uh, for many decades. And then uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism across Europe, uh, Václav Havel, who was a Czech, uh, Czechoslovak dissident, eventually became president of uh, first Czechoslovakia uh, before it, it, it dissolved in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Uh, he loved our work. He had appeared on our programming when we were in Munich, and he realized the role that we played in the, the so-called Velvet Revolution here in the Czech Republic, and he invited us to move. And as part of our uh, downsizing that happened in the 90s, uh, when the Congress agreed to keep us around, uh, they, they liked the idea of us being a smaller organization with a smaller footprint, and they liked the idea of us moving uh, eastward to some of the countries that we used to broadcast to uh, from uh, Munich. So we've been here ever since the mid-90s. And our move here really reinvigorated our mission. And now half of our staff here at our headquarters in the Czech Republic are actually Czechs who lived under, some of the older ones lived under communism. Uh, they experienced firsthand uh, the authoritarian system that our journalism is really uh, funded to counter. And so it's given us a new lease on life. And, and uh, every day, I think it inspires us to be working in this country that is now enjoying uh, several decades of freedom. I want to get back to Havel, Czech Republic, more broadly, uh, the history of the Cold War that you just mentioned. But before we go there, you're known in Washington, D.C. as a foreign policy leader. You've done that in government, working for Senator Rubio, leading Senator Rubio's foreign policy team during his 2016 run for the presidency. You've also worked in Department of Defense and National Security Council and led think tanks like the Foreign Policy Initiative. Is that the typical profile for a president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty? Uh, it's probably a bit unique, uh, but we have had uh, some of my predecessors who've had similar uh, Washington foreign policy backgrounds. Uh, we've also had journalists run the organization. It is a news organization. Uh, but uh, I was drawn to RFERL many years ago uh, when I first visited Prague actually as a student. And then later when I interacted with some of the organization's journalists when I was a Senate staffer doing oversight from, uh, uh, from Capitol Hill, um, I was always inspired by the mission. And the mission at its core is about ensuring that uh, independent journalism is available to citizens uh, in countries where journalism and the truth are under assault. And that's always been something I've cared deeply about, about advancing democracy and human rights. Uh, and so RFRL's mission is uh, very much a part of that broader fight to advance democracy. And, and so it's something that, that fits with my background from that perspective. In, in preparing for this, Jamie, I, I kind of was startled how expansive the reach is of 
Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. See that it broadcasts in 27 languages, 23 countries, 600 full-time journalists, in addition to 1,300 freelancers, and then 21 local bureaus. That's pretty big, but not confined to Europe. Did I get that right? Yeah, we basically cover the post-Soviet space uh, in, in addition to Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan. So I like to say everywhere from you know, Belarus, which is kind of on uh, the uh, western edge of the former Soviet Union, all the way across Eurasia to the western border of China, and then down into South Asia, down to Pakistan, uh, and down into the Middle East and, and Iran. So yeah, it's, an, it's a large part of uh, the globe that we cover. And then we have sister networks that are also funded by the U.S. Congress that cover the rest of the globe uh, with similar uh, types of journalism and news uh, that, that they share through their platforms. You just mentioned that sister networks that are also funded by the U.S. Congress. Tell us about Radio Free Europe's Radio Liberty's independence and at the same time its reliance on government funding. How does it all work together? It clearly creates some complications we'll get into in terms of how you're perceived by the countries where RFE is operating within. Yeah, it's an important part of, of who we are. Uh, we don't hide the fact that we receive an annual appropriation from the U.S. Congress that comes to us right now through a U.S. agency called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is an independent agency. Uh, that agency has a tradition of playing a role of ensuring that the rest of the U.S. government, uh, administrations as they come and go, or State Department officials, ensuring that they don't meddle in our daily coverage decisions, uh, even when we may be covering a government that, uh, although it doesn't allow freedom of the press, that government might be partnering with a particular U.S. administration, but we are, by law, supposed to be able to cover that government objectively, to not have interference from sitting U.S. officials. Uh, and so we have some measures in place. We call it the firewall uh, to prevent government officials from meddling in our work. Uh, but our, throughout our history, uh, the source of our funding has at times been controversial for the first several decades of our existence. Uh, we were actually funded by the Central Intelligence Agency that was only revealed to the world in the 1970s as Congress uh, debated the issue. Um, Post-1970s, reforms were put in place to wall us off even further from the federal government and to fund us overtly, which I think is key. Nothing about our funding is hidden now, the source or the amount. Um, and so our audiences can judge for themselves. But the great thing about us and our brand is that through 70 years in many of these countries, we've built up a loyal following. And we see this even now in the digital age where brand loyalty is diminished across the entire media landscape. People still know us. They trust us. They trust our honesty and our objectivity. And that is really key to our success in many of these markets. Uh, and and we, again, we see this with younger generations, not just people who grew up listening to us on the radio 20, 30, 40 years ago. So I want to we'll focus on that in a minute. Brand loyalty, digital age, young people, all that is kind of top of mind as we evaluate an organization that's been around, as you note, some 70 years. But let's go back to this firewall that you just outlined between Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, and the U.S. government. Is there an anecdote that comes to mind where RFE was carrying out its mission, telling the story? as it is, irrespective perhaps how it reflected on the government in whose country you're operating. And yet the U.S. government really would have liked you have not to focus on that, to have that level of transparency. The recent, there aren't many recent anecdotes because to be honest, at least in the two years that I've been engaged at RFERL, uh, the two administrations, the Trump administration and uh, now the Biden administration that I've interacted with, They've been very professional about that. Uh, they have under understood and acknowledged the importance of our independence. So uh, it's not a routine matter for me as president to be getting requests uh, from U.S. officials. Uh, they realize that's not their role. 
but it comes into play if you just think about that broad group of countries that uh, we cover. Um, not all of them are potential partners, the United States. There's not a lot of U.S.-Russian partnership, for instance, right now. Uh, but in parts of Central Asia, uh, we've now broadcast also to some NATO allies uh, like Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. Uh, these are countries where there are deep U.S. government ties with those governments. And we report on uncomfortable topics. We expose corruption in those governments. Uh, we've done reporting in the last several years in Bulgaria, again, a NATO ally of the United States that led to ministers having to resign. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are issues where I'm sure if I was sitting in the State Department uh, handling U.S.-Bulgarian relations, uh, it might not be the best thing for U.S.-Bulgarian relations if a particular minister resigns at a, a certain point. Well, because um, you have a U.S.-funded entity, albeit independent, as you've outlined, paying journalists to report, in this case, you're describing corruption within a country that's a NATO ally, partner, security, economic partner. Um, that, of course, is going to create tension and difficulty in the relationship. We've heard about democratic backsliding in some of these Eastern Bloc countries. Viktor Orban, Hungary is one that gets a lot of attention. Have you seen suppression of your journalists in a country like Hungary uh, in the way that we might expect to see from a country with an authoritarian regime? Yeah, we, given our return in recent years to Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary, it has been a bit eye-opening, I'll say, as we've gotten back into those markets. We had shut down our services uh, in each of those countries in the years following the end of the Cold War because the, the prevailing wisdom was that they were on the path uh, to an independent press. They didn't need our services anymore. But uh, more recently, we were instructed to return by our oversight agency and by the, the State Department. Um, we don't face the same direct physical threats in those countries, thankfully, that we our journalists do in places like Afghanistan or Central Asia or the direct harassment that they face right now in Russia. Um, but there's been some very disturbing signs uh, for countries that are NATO allies and EU member states. Um, Hungary, it was revealed as part of the, the, uh, the Pandora um, spyware scandal. The Hungarian government was purchasing uh, technology to spy on journalists. Uh, I have no evidence that they were spying on our journalists in particular, but that is a disturbing sign in a free society that journalists are under domestic scrutiny. Did uh, Radio Free Europe report on the Pandora revelation? Yeah, we did not expose it ourselves. There was a, an international consortium, but yeah, we would have reported on that and highlighted the Hungarian link to our Hungarian audiences. And so we're always trying to hold governments accountable when they take actions like that. The other thing we need to acknowledge, even about those NATO allies, is there's a lot of external attempts uh, within the European Union, uh, within NATO allies, to pull those allies away from the United States. You see growing uh, Chinese influence in that region. We report on that, uh, expose that. And you've seen for many decades, obviously, Russian influence. Uh, and that's also a big part of our mission is to expose those foreign authoritarian attempts uh, to undermine their democratic uh, progress. And so for all of those reasons, our journalists are on the front lines of of that battle and, and often face pressure uh, from I, government. I want to get to journalism and misinformation in just a moment. You mentioned China and Russia and what they're doing. But before we go there, take us back to perhaps the golden age, right? The 19... 60s, perhaps 80s, where Radio for Europe really was this lifeline for those seeking freedom in the captive countries during the Cold War. Is that a model worth replicating? How do you look at it and say, okay, there's something there, there's a nugget that's irrelevant today, or different time, different era, and beyond just giving information so people can think freely the analogy really runs kind of dry. No, I think there is something to the analogy. I mean, obviously, we live in a modern information environment where people get their news and information much differently, even in closed or closing 
uh, societies, people have all kinds of access to information for the most part. Um, there are a few countries that are still, you know, North Korea, or we just had a conversation here yesterday about Turkmenistan, where we broadcast to, uh, which has some North Korea-like tendencies where you don't have a lot of information and the government has extensive control over the internet. Uh, but that is not the norm across much of the world. Um, so some of the analogy doesn't hold, but the part of the analogy that holds are that people want access to unbiased information. They want access to the truth. Uh, people appreciate efforts uh, to break through all the noise and to deliver information that is relevant to their lives, which is a, what our broadcasters have always done, uh, even going back to the, the radio days in Munich. Uh, people are suspicious of government. People are suspicious of governmental authorities who have an agenda, especially in uh, uh, countries uh, in the post-Soviet space. And so the power of, like we'd started in the early days, handing over the microphone to people who had recently fled repression and letting them talk to their fellow countrymen and women who were stuck behind the Iron Curtain, that still applies. And we do a lot of that uh, including here from our headquarters in Prague. The one major difference that started in the 90s is we've been able to go and get closer to the audience for much of the last several decades. We set up those uh, 21 bureaus you talked about. Uh, the challenge we're facing now is that those bureaus are coming under assault as we see this backsliding, as we see the authoritarian resurgence. And so just in the last year, we've been struggling to uh, keep our bureau in Moscow open. Our bureau in Minsk and Belarus was raided. We've obviously now lost our bureau in Kabul, Afghanistan, uh, because of the collapse of the government. Um, but we we now do a type of journalism for many of our markets where our journalists ideally are living and working side by side with our audiences. So they have the pulse of what they care about and they can serve them more effectively. Uh, but when necessary, we do operate from afar and we do circumvent the government attempts to block our signals or to block the internet. Uh, and so there are a lot of parallels to the past. Uh, but obviously we need to evolve and make sure we're still relevant for our audiences, no matter how they're getting information. I want to jump uh, into a bunch of things you've just outlined, Russia, Belarus, Afghanistan. But before we go there, you mentioned before Havel benefited and relied upon Radio Free Europe when at the time Czechoslovakia was a, was a captive country. He, of course, was advancing freedom and so led uh, free Czech Republic. When he gave that testimonial and said, this helped me, this institution helped me, what did he focus on? What were the elements that he felt were just essential for someone like a Havel to bring freedom for him, his family, his community, and his country? I think he focused on the fact that we gave people like him and other uh, Czechoslovaks a voice uh, we gave a voice to the voiceless. Uh, we allowed people to communicate with each other. Even though we weren't physically, it was illegal for us to operate inside Czechoslovakia. Uh, but through the medium of radio, we allowed people like Havel to talk to fellow Czechs uh, and to engage in a conversation with them. And we do that still to this day, now using uh, not just radio, but TV and digital uh, we often do debate shows. We do talk shows. Afghanistan, we do call-in shows where people can call in from the provinces. We sometimes have Taliban figures now that are fielding questions and engaging in debate uh, with uh, Afghan citizens. And so that's always been a hallmark of our approach uh, to information. And it is a fundamental divide from, between what we can offer and what state propaganda offers, because state propaganda is one-sided. Uh, there is no room for debate. Uh, on Russian TV. Uh, they don't invite in legitimate citizens who aren't uh, in a staged attempt uh, to curry favor with the regime or to push certain talking points. And so our programming is fundamentally different from what uh, the other options are that many of our audiences are able to access in their countries. You kind of answered my follow-up question, but perhaps it can go a little bit deeper. You talk about Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty gives voice to the voiceless. At the same time, in the digital age, I got to think it's a bit of a saturated space. There's so many channels to get information. 
and perhaps information that you want to hear and you don't have to be exposed to information you don't want to hear. How do you rise above the noise? What you were just saying, I guess, was you invite discussion and debate, which in an authoritarian country, you're never going to get. So you're qualitatively different, but you still have to be saddled with this challenge of elevating above or apart from a lot of saturation in the media space. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And we, like any international news organization, are spending a lot of our time figuring out how do we adapt our programming to be relevant for this new media environment. And so we're pushing a strategy of digital first right now, which is not abandoning other platforms, but ensuring that we're relevant on all the uh, platforms that our audiences are using to engage uh, with information. Um, I'd say across our market, uh, our various markets, it varies widely. Some countries we are in still only have really state TV or state news outlets. And then an example, Tajikistan, uh, most of our Central Asian markets uh, do not have a diversity of options because the governments are so brutal in shutting down anything close to independent media. And sometimes sometimes they also kick us out. We've been kicked out of uh, Uzbekistan for many years, for instance. Um, but sometimes they allow us to operate partly because we're congressionally funded. Uh, and that gives us the ability to stay in that market and fight to pry open the information space. And so in markets like that, we often have uh, 40% or 40% or more uh, market share, uh, which is almost impossible to get in a modern uh, Western media market for any brand. Uh, but we've got significant reach because there aren't a lot of other options. In the more complex environments uh, where there's a lot of private media activity, the big problem is, and we see this in, to a certain extent in Western Europe and the US as well, a lot of the media have their own object, uh, political uh, agenda. They're often uh, advancing a private corporate agenda, which is a huge problem uh, in places like Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, where you have oligarch media. Um, you've got a lot of options if, if you live in Georgia, but you don't really have a lot of independent objective options. Uh, state TV uh, or state radio, the version of PBS or NPR, they often are politicized uh, right out of the gate by governments. So you can't get objective independent coverage from those outlets. So who do you turn to? And that's the role that we play because of our history, because of the deep respect that people have for us. It doesn't mean we're going to be reaching 60, 70% of the public on a weekly basis, but for people who want to seek out independent information and not just view information that favors a particular political party, uh, we are the outlet that they respect and trust. And so they will be drawn to us. And so that's our place. In, so in pull the, the thread on Georgia. Place. It's a great example. You know, a country that is democratic, but having its challenges, some might say backsliding. You know, Georgia would be an example of democratic backsliding. Yet the problem is they suppress any media. They've just dominated through various different state-backed, oligarch-backed channels. So a radio for Europe has to compete. And it just plays into this larger notion that free countries are wrestling with, which misinformation and charged information and ideologically driven information that people just seem to doubt that you could truly have free media, a media that is truly independent, or to go to your mission, a media that promotes democratic values, institutions, and advanced human, human rights. They'll just be skeptical of that. Yeah, I think a lot of audiences are, just as they are in the United States, are very skeptical uh, because they know that the ownership of a lot of these media outlets is very murky, that people are in it, uh, not just to make a profit, because most media enterprises aren't profit-making at this point because of the collapse of advertising uh, as people have moved online. Uh, and so they know that every media outlet usually has an agenda. And because our funding is consistent, because our funding comes from the U.S. Congress. Uh, people know that we're advancing a certain democratic ideal. But beyond that, 
they know that we're not going in to pick one party over the other. And so that's we find that that is still appealing to a lot of our audiences. The other thing I just add beyond the various debates between the different uh, media outlets and the corporate interests, you got to layer on the foreign influence. Uh, the Russians, uh, sometimes overtly, but in a place like Georgia, more likely covertly, funding certain media initiatives, certain digital projects, uh, the Chinese increasingly entering into that space. Uh, and so it leads to essentially this corrosion of the information system where I think the goal of a lot of these actors is not even to advance one particular argument. Uh, they're just trying to make everyone doubt every uh, all the other options. It, advanced, it advances Russia's interest, for example, to just sow division, undermine trust in institutions like we've seen here in the United States, particularly during our elections, rather than perhaps the old Cold War model where they use the media to try to advance I don't know, allegiance to the communist manifesto. That's just, it's a different approach now where they just try to be spoilers. Is it making you revisit Jamie Fly? Almost a core mission that you have at Radio for Europe, which is to advance democratic values, but specifically free speech and free press. That somehow it can't operate yeah. successfully in this marketplace of democratic countries that border powerful autocratic countries. I mean, to, quite to the contrary, actually, we think that this is our moment more than ever uh, because the information system is part of the authoritarian assault on democracy. We really see ourselves as playing the role of a pillar propping up the information space. Now, that may sound uh, overly naive or optimistic, but we see in individual cases uh, where from interacting with our audience, where we on certain stories, where we can have an impact, where people still turn to us, uh, people are desperate for objectivity and balance and independence, especially in these contested markets. Uh, we hear it in their responses to us. I hear it when I travel and I interact uh, with people who uh, watch our content or listen to our content. Um, some of that goes back to our history and our brand. And so I would argue if anyone, is able to operate in these situations, in these contested media markets. It is us because people trust us. And it's trust that's been passed down through generations because of our history and what we've achieved before. Jamie, you were just talking about how this is the moment for Radio for Europe and these examples perhaps that reinforce the importance of your mission and success. Kind of your board of directors are the 535 members of Congress who fund Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, what metrics do you turn to? What examples would you highlight to demonstrate not only this is the critical fight, but you're in the heart of it and you're seeing some success? Yeah, we do a lot of uh, research uh, surveys in the countries where we can, uh, through the U.S. agency that funds us, can get access, even do focus groups, uh, looking at our programming, looking at our reach, so there are cer there's certain data, just like any media organization, that we can use to measure our success. Um, the great thing about uh, the move online and digital output is that it's easier to track, um, easier certainly than radio or TV uh, listenership and viewership. Um, so we have digital metrics that we can look at. Uh, in Russia, which is obviously uh, one of our biggest markets, uh, despite the Kremlin's attempts, to block us from TV, to block us from the radio airwaves. We've doubled our digital audience, for instance, in the last five years. And we can have some insights into who that audience is, uh, what they're engaging with. Uh, and we see it, to be honest, it's un unfortunate because of the response it provokes. But when we provoke a response, we know that we're doing the right thing, that these governments uh, understand the power of our work uh, because we see this across our coverage area, unprecedented attacks on our journalism and efforts to restrict our ability to operate. And in a way, that is a metric as well. Uh, right. Because the apathy if, if we were being ineffective, uh, then they would uh, they would not be responding right. at if all. If they didn't care about you, they wouldn't be shutting down offices or freezing accounts, which we'll get into. If I told my teenagers the way we're advancing freedom 
in Russia, in Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, is through Radio Free Europe, they would look at me and say, radio? Either not understanding what radio is, or if they did, saying, isn't that a thing you guys listen to? Why stick with the word? Yeah, and we've had a debate about this inside the organization. Uh, I think right now, a lot of it is just the power of the brand uh, in many of our countries uh, that harkens back to our early years. Uh, it is, you know, not, not many organizations uh, have a, a, a name that, you know, has had uh, songs written about it by REM, for instance. Uh, but even, even uh, locally, people respect our brand. They know our brand. Uh, and so I think there might be some downsides of changing it. The other thing, though, I'd say is we do have many other brands that we operate under. Um, some of our Russia work is actually done through a channel which has a completely different brand. It's called Current Time. Uh, and that's an incredibly successful Russian language channel, which is available via satellite outside of Russia to the Russian diaspora. And it can be watched and engaged with uh, online. Uh, we are active on all the relevant social media platforms in whatever market we're in. Uh, and so people, even though they might be kind of questioning why it's called radio, they still come to interact with our content on the digital platforms. We're not just wedded to radio as the transmission. And in many of our markets, we're increasingly not doing radio at all, uh, depending on our audience needs. Let's go to a few of the countries that I know I've dominated your time and the attention of RFE and Radio Liberty. Let's start with Afghanistan. Of course, in August, we had the tragic fall of the Afghan government, Taliban takeover, mismanagement by the Biden administration of that withdrawal. You, of course, and Radio for Europe was involved because you had reporters on the ground. Briefly tell us about what happened in terms of as it relates to RFE during the fall of the Afghan government and where things stand now? Sure. We've, we've had a large bureau in Kabul uh, for many years uh, and uh, have significant audience reach and still do, even with the new government uh, across Afghanistan. Uh, it's a place where radio actually is still very relevant right. <laughs> because of the geographic reach uh, across rural areas. Uh, using FM transmitters, and we're still up on those FM transmitters despite the government change. Um, but our journalists, uh, brave individuals, we've lost four of them over the last four years in attacks uh, in Afghanistan. They've been targeted uh, by the Taliban and associated groups in the past. And so we were very worried uh, back in August when the government collapsed uh, and started working uh, with other organizations, with our uh, funding agency, USA Global Media, our partners at Voice of America, to get our journalists out, uh, all those who wanted to leave. Uh, we didn't have a lot of success in the early phases, and we're quite frustrated that we and our journalists, like many other groups, civilian organizations, were not prioritized during the military evacuation. Thankfully, uh, we've made some progress since the U.S. military evacuation ended. Uh, using private means, uh, getting people out to third countries. Well, why uh, wouldn't the U.S. government on? include RFE, Radio Liberty employees, consultants, those who have been advancing the overall mission in Afghanistan? Why wouldn't they get special immigrant visas and support? Why are you getting privately funded travel to take these people out of Afghanistan? Obviously, the Taliban is going to target them. This is a entirely counter to the Taliban. Yeah, we've it's a we've been fighting for months to get our people access into the relevant U.S. programs. Uh, the I just say the State Department I think was slow to set up categories for groups like journalists uh, who were not or our people are not federal employees, even though we're congressionally funded. Uh, and so I think they were behind and then the well, government was collapsed. a translator for the U S military, a federal employee. And that seemed to be accepted that they'd be included. Yeah. So the category was created shortly before the fall of the government. Uh, our people now, once we get them out to have eventual access into that resettlement program, 
But as people have probably seen from a lot of the press reporting, there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Afghan nationals queued up waiting to get into those programs now. And so the biggest challenge is uh, getting our people into a safe place uh, where they can uh, go through their processing for eventual resettlement into the U.S. And thankfully, we've been able to do uh, that with about half of our staff. Uh, we're trying to get the remaining groups out as soon as possible. But there are so many hurdles for Afghan nationals in these programs. Many don't have travel documents. And right now, Taliban and even other third countries will not allow Afghans who do not have passports to leave the country, which is a huge challenge in a country where very few people really even saw the need for a passport prior to the collapse of the government. So we're working through all of those issues. One more in Afghanistan, zooming out a little bit to this broader situation. Has the nature of the stories they're reporting from Radio for Europe on Afghanistan changed? What I mean by that, with the Taliban takeover, we get these stories of the return of the Taliban regime and what it means for women, children, political institutions. Are you seeing those stories coming out from your reporters on the ground? Yeah, our reporters, uh, even though they've uh, faced a lot of challenges, we've faced threats and harassment, they've been doing incredibly brave reporting uh, from the ground covering uh, the issues that Afghans are debating in the wake of the Taliban takeover. Uh, we have not changed the format or structure of our programming uh, at all, despite the fact that there's a new government that has certain views about music, about uh, women appearing in programming. Uh, and so we have made no accommodations for this new government. And we have received some threats and warnings from the Taliban about that. But as of right now, our signals are still going out. Our, all of our radio programming, 12 hours a day, is being broadcast. And we'll just have to see whether the Taliban live up to their broad promises that they've made about allowing media to operate. I obviously am very skeptical about their intentions. Uh, but for now, uh, we're able to continue to reach the Afghan people. Let's move from one radical regime now to the autocratic regime that is Putin's Russia. Tell us a bit about your challenge in reporting in Russia and specifically how they have sought to freeze your bank accounts uh, for Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty in, in Moscow. Is there some sort of view here that you guys, that is RFE, are no different than, let's just say, RL, you know, the, the, the Russian media arm that operates in the United States? My sense is the you, you know, U.S. hasn't frozen their bank accounts. I'm not aware of that, but, but certainly view them as a propaganda arm of the Putin regime. Take me through what's going on on the ground in Moscow. Yeah, so we've been obviously broadcasting and serving uh, the Russian people uh, for 70 years. And even at the height of the Cold War, uh, even during the Reagan administration, we were able to work with journalists on the ground inside the Soviet Union. We had freelancers that worked for us. We didn't have a physical bureau until 91 when we were invited in by President uh, Yeltsin, uh, who famously said, I no longer uh, distrust you, I said to one of our reporters, and then proceeded to invite us to open our physical office. Um, so we feel it's important to be able to report about Russia for the Russian people from inside of Russia. But ever since Vladimir Putin has come to power, uh, he has targeted us, uh, tightening uh, the screws, so to speak, on our operations inside Russia. We've been des designated a so-called foreign agent media for the last four years. Uh, and initially, that didn't mean much. But now the Russian state has added all kinds of requirements to our ability to continue to operate. And the latest was that they wanted us to label every single piece of content that we put out. Uh, in Russia for the Russian audience, including social media videos, tweets, uh, telegram posts, every single one needed to have a warning on it, uh, declaring ourselves to be foreign agents. So we have refused to comply with that because we saw it as an effort to manipulate our audience. And our online audience is essential inside Russia, given those other efforts I mentioned earlier to block us from the radio airwaves and from TV. Um, because we've failed to comply, we now owe $4.4 million in fines. 
uh, and they've frozen our bank accounts and they uh, have already uh, declared their intent to likely seize our Moscow bureau. It's incredibly frustrating after 30 years of working inside Russia for the Russian audience that we're now in a position where we and many other media outlets who are now being declared foreign agents face the risk of being shut down. And Putin is essentially trying to block all independent media options for the Russian people, given his own insecurities about his future uh, and really his own fear, uh, his fear of his own citizens. Well, uh, let, that's, let's that's drill down at. on that for a second, Jamie. Clearly, there is analog to the Cold War there in terms of fearing the free flow of information and labeling an entity like Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, as a foreign agent. But let's just round out this approach and explain why it's completely legitimate. And by that, I mean, if you had an entity like Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty operating in the United States, with the U.S. Congress or executive branch of president be able to label Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty as a foreign agent? So the, the uh, analog that the Kremlin points to is the treatment of Russia Today and Sputnik, uh, the two main Russian outlets in the United States. And we do have a Foreign Agent Registration Act in the United States that mainly governs the work of lobbyists uh, and people who are pushing the agenda of foreign governments in Washington. It was expanded years ago to include foreign funded media as part of in response to congressional concerns about uh, foreign hostile foreign actors use of these outlets to spread propaganda. However, the main distinction uh, is that in the United States, RT and Sputnik are not forced to label every single piece of content they put out. Uh, no one is raiding their office right now. No one is labeling their individual journalists as foreign agents, uh, which the Russian state is now doing to our journalists in an attempt to force them out of the, the industry. Uh, and no one is trying to shut down RT and Sputnik in the United States. They have multiple bureaus. They, uh, RT is available on any satellite package you want to get in the United States. Sputnik has radio deals, including in the heartland, in Kansas City, Missouri. You can listen to Sputnik radio uh, <laughs> if, if you as an American want to do that. We are blocked from all of those ways of engaging with the Russian audience and have been blocked for many years. So the Russians like to use the argument of reciprocity. We're just doing the same things to you that the U.S. government is doing to RT and Sputnik, but it's just fundamentally not true. Great response. Good detail there, Jamie. One more country before we have to end our conversation and move to the lightning round. Another authoritarian sitting in that same neighborhood, Alexander Lukashenko, who recently was, I guess, put air quotes here, reelected a leader of Belarus, how has he responded to Radio Free Europe? I think it's another example where you have an authoritarian working really hard to intimidate and suppress the work you do. Yeah, it's been a tough year uh, for our team, uh, both in Belarus and, and those who work here in Prague to serve the Belarusian audience. Uh, Lukashenko had a fraudulent, uh, a fraudulent re-election. Uh, he tried to run up his margin so significantly that the fraud was readily apparent uh, to anyone who was watching in August of 2020. Uh, and the Belarusian people responded. Yeah, they protested in the streets, streets in Minsk. Yeah. Uh, massive protests, uh, angry protests about what he tried to do to hold on to power. Uh, the opposition, uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, uh, who had who stood in for her husband, who was in prison before the election, had no political experience, uh, and apparently won the vote. Uh, she eventually had to flee the country under pressure, and now she leads that government in exile, essentially. So it's been a tough year politically. And in response to the protests, what Lukashenko did is decide to crack down on pretty much anyone who had anything resembling the work of a journalist uh, if you live streamed a protest, you got a prison sentence. We had people who journalists who went out on the street and just happened to be near a protest. They actually weren't even covering it. They would get arrested, uh, thrown in jail for 10 days. Uh, one of our 
uh, consultants, uh, social media consultant doing digital work was actually arrested prior to the election, Ihar Losik, and he's been in prison ever since. And they now are putting him on show trial. There's been a brutal crackdown and criminalization of journalism inside Belarus. Many of our colleagues had to flee. Uh, our, our bureau was actually raided in uh, August uh, by the Belarusian authorities. And so we're now operating mostly from outside of the country because of the pressure. And it's a frightening vision of what countries like Russia, I fear, could become uh, if this trajectory continues of a tightening of the media space and a crackdown on journalism. Uh, in Belarus right now, essentially, it is illegal to be a journalist. Doesn't matter what you say as a journalist, you cannot be a journalist and cannot report unless you work for Russian, uh, sorry, Belarusian state TV. Uh, and so it's an incredibly frightening landscape that we see right now in Belarus. Well, all the more important the work you're doing. Last question before the lightning round, and it's really trying to tie this conversation together. What is more difficult for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, you, Jamie Fly, leading that organization? Countering the disinformation in democratic countries that are being undermined by autocrats or penetrating these autocratic countries and speaking to those people who want freedom, who want to get the truth and the true stories in their countries? What's the greater challenge? It's a good question. I think, uh, to be honest, uh, it depends on the market, but I think maybe uh, engaging in, in at least partially uh, democratic countries is more challenging. And I say that because when you look at some of the authoritarian governments that I mentioned earlier, like in Central Asia, when they have such a tight control on the information space, it creates a hunger amongst the population for alternatives. But in democracies, many democracies, we have the opposite problem. We actually have too much choice in many uh, senses. And people then I think, uh, get numbed by the options that they have. Uh, and it's harder to break through. Uh, and people get sucked in just as they do on social media in the US into their stovepipes of information uh, where they rely on information that maybe just reinforces their pre-existing views rather than challenging their own perspectives. And that's also then how disinformation, conspiracy theories can fester. Um, so a lot of the democratic countries have incredibly complex media ecosystems uh, that I think any news organization, and especially one with our mission of objectivity and balance, find it really difficult to operate in. Uh, whereas in those authoritarian states, peep, I find it's very similar to uh, the Soviet Union and other countries we operate in during the Cold War. People are hungry for the truth. People are hungry for ob objectivity, and it's much easier to track uh, to attract that audience if you can get if you can access them sure. given these access controls that always get applied fascinating response um one that i guess i understand but wouldn't have anticipated when we started this conversation certainly president reagan always felt advancing freedom at home and abroad complemented one another and that really was a, a core uh objective of President Reagan's administration, important legacy item, which we talk about a lot here. Let's go to the lightning round. Jamie, this is where we ask our guests to share with us their favorite book on President Reagan, favorite speech by President Reagan, and favorite Reagan quote. Give us all three, two, or just one. Yeah, so for uh, favorite book, I mean, I obviously love uh, the Reagan Diaries and anything written by Ronald Reagan, but uh, one book I came across recently, I'm not sure it's Reagan Institute endorsed, but um, it's The Heart of a Great Nation, Timeless Wisdom from Ronald Reagan, which is a collection of Reagan speeches. And uh, I was excited when I saw it come out because the foreword to it is written by my old boss, Marco Rubio. Uh, and the editor of the book uh, is an, an old college friend of mine, uh, someone named Adam Kuyper. Uh, who now is an editor at the Bulwark in Washington. Uh, but it's a great collection of Reagan speeches that uh, is relatively new uh, and uh, I thought very compelling 
Uh, the Reagan Foundation likes any book which advances President Reagan's legacy, especially in a book where it advances Reagan in his own words. Okay, good. Yes. That's the book. What do you got on speech and quote? Uh, on uh, on quote first, um, this is a quote that I stumb. I've I've I'd heard it before, but uh, I saw it inscribed on what was the Reagan the Ronald Reagan statue in Grosvenor Square in London years ago. One one year, it's when still I still there, there, not in Grosvenor Square because they're redoing that whole area. But it will be back in a few years. Yeah, I read a little bit today. Actually, I was looking into this about the uh, as the U.S. Embassy moved the debate over where to put the statue. Uh, but it's a quote from his second inaugural. Above all, we must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. And it's something that I see daily in our work. It's the power uh, of freedom. It's the power of uh, our journalists who uh, show immense will and moral courage uh, and really, that's also often the only defense they have against these authoritarian tactics. Jamie, when you're back in Washington, D.C., that quote, you may recall, sits proudly on the wall outside of auto- the Ben Sutton family auditorium. So we like that one, too. Give us a speech. The speech is maybe an unorthodox one, but I think you and I have maybe talked about this. Um, I stumbled upon this one of President Reagan after he retired one of his final, I think, public speeches, not the final, but it was in December 1992, uh, an address to students at the Oxford Union, uh, and it's titled Democracy's Next Battle. Uh, and it's, uh, I'd urge everyone to check it out. Uh, if you read it now, several decades later, uh, given where some of our debates have gone on the right in the United States, it's a striking speech from a conservative president, very forward-looking, very supportive even, for instance, of international institutions, uh, which was surprising to me. Uh, And and it came at a time when there was a debate about intervention in the Balkans. Uh, And then also a nice message uh, to young people uh, about how to dedicate their lives to the service of others and how to take a stand for freedom. So I'd highly recommend. Well, we'll link to that one. December 1992, President Reagan addressing the Oxford Union. Jamie Fly, what a great conversation. Continue doing amazing work out there in Prague. Look forward to having you back on the show.